My name is Dr. Kimberly Wiley. I teach organizational leadership and nonprofits for the Department of Family, Youth, and Community Sciences at the University of Florida. In this podcast, I offer lessons from our course readings to support knowledge building and skill mastery in nonprofit leadership and management. In this episode, I talk again with Zoe Flowers. This time we talk about her journey from being a survivor of intimate partner violence to her journey to working in nonprofits, becoming a consultant, and then an entrepreneur. Welcome back to our class, Zoe. We're really excited to have you back and learn some more from you about your leadership in the nonprofit world, um, doing all sorts of things. And today we'll jump into kind of your journey, how you got from point A to point B. Now what we've done in our class at the beginning of the semester, the students, um, they chose a job that they'd like to have in five years. Okay. And they uh, worked backwards and created a kind of a fake, a mock resume of what the resume will look like when they apply for the job in five years. Okay. So they, kind of mapped out their journey over the next five years and what, what they would do. We talked about how sometimes our journeys are intentional and linear and other times our journeys are not linear and we end up in places where we're like, how the heck do we end up here? <laughs> and, and eventually it, it comes together and you find, a, you find your place and all of the different steps along the way make sense. Um, but we can be intentional too and look forward to where we aim to be, and that might be where we end up in five years, or maybe we end up somewhere different. I'm really excited for you to share your journey because you have a lot of um, different steps that have really built up to give you great expertise, wisdom, and experience to serve in your role as a consultant. Great. So I am Zoe Flowers, <laughs> and um, I have been doing nonprofit work uh, for the past 20 years, I uh, mainly in the domestic violence, sexual assault field. Um, I did do a little, I did about a year or two, you know, about two years at Habitat for Humanity. So I dove into the housing end for a bit, but mainly my work has been around domestic and sexual violence, particularly in marginalized populations um, and communities. And um, come to the work, well, we'll talk about that, but coming to the work as a survivor of um, domestic uh, dating, violence, sexual assault, et cetera. And um, so also an artist, a uh, writer, and um, for the past 10 years or so, I would say formally, I've been doing healing work, um, again, mostly with advocates and uh, survivors of one form or another crime, Etc. Um, so that's that's what I've been doing. And then for the past five years, I would say formally, I've been more known as using the arts as a way to heal from domestic and sexual violence. So I definitely have taken uh, the windy road for sure. So let's go back to the beginning. So you shared the era survivor of dating violence, and what did that mean to you back then? And what does that mean to you today? Sure. Well, back then it didn't mean anything because I didn't think I, I would never have said I was in a dating violence relationship. I thought that I was just uh, in a relationship with uh, a man who had experienced a lot of uh, hardships, 
um, grew up in foster care, didn't like really know his um, biological parents, had a lot of issues just in life. And so I thought that he was just a person that was angry and that um, if I loved him enough that that would stop his, his um, anger and violence, right? And um, luckily for me, not to minimize anything, but luckily for me, I did not experience a lot of physical violence that kind of came more towards the end as it happens in most most um, violent relationships. So um, yeah, I just thought I was just helping him and, um, and then it kind of turned into a stalking relationship. And so then that just caused a that's really what set me on this road to advocacy. So it really wasn't until I joined the domestic violence movement, um, I would say about three years after being in that relationship, that I found out that, um, wow, there's like a name for this thing that I have been in. And that um, there's a 30 year history at that time of folks had been, who had been organizing and working around these issues. And wow, there's like logical reasons why all this stuff played out. So, and then all the other like assaults and things like that that I had experienced in my life along the way. Um, yeah, I was able to just like connect the dots to the violence that I had experienced. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Well, How do you end up working in the nonprofit sector? What appealed to you? Yeah, no, nothing. Because um, I, again, I never, I didn't consider myself a survivor. I just was in Atlanta. And even though I had to move to Atlanta because I was being stalked and the police said, um, you know, in Connecticut where I grew up, um, they were like, there's nothing we can do for you. This was, you know, a while ago, many years ago. And so they're like, there's nothing we can do for you unless he does something to you. We didn't see anything, so we can't protect you. And so it just so happened that, um, I, that, yeah, and that was after we had broken up. And so I had come to Atlanta to do a hair show with a friend. And I was just like, whoa, Atlanta seems like it's the place to be. Things are really crazy in Connecticut. So I just moved. And that's the only reason why I got away from that person was because I had the ability to, to leave the state. And um, once I was there, about a year or two in, I just answered an ad in the paper. So I was longer than that because I moved to Atlanta in 94 and I started the movement in 2000, so six years. So um, I just answered an ad in the paper for an office manager that just so happened to be at the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I knew nothing about any of that. I just was like, oh, okay, I need, I need a job. And so I answered the ad in the paper and, you know, there were just so many books there. And my executive director was like this hardcore feminist who had like started a shelter um, years before by her and her other waitress friends had pulled, pulled their tips together and opened a shelter. Like that was my entry into the movement, like just hardcore like folks. And so I just read everything. I'm a nerd. You see the big glasses. I just read everything. I studied everything. I wanted to know everything about this work. And, and then it just like took over my life. <laughs> but nonprofit was not, I mean, I, I'm a theater kid. I grew up thinking that I was going to be an actor. And um, so doing this work was not even something I ever thought I would ever do. A few steps after, I mean, you've gone through a few nonprofits, you ended up at a, a new nonprofit run by Mariska Hardigay. So you guys know who Mariska Hardigay is. So she, uh, she's, 
Captain Olivia Benson and um, SVU. Zoe did some healing work working there. And so let's just get this out of the way. What is she like? Um, is she anything like Captain Benson? Well, I don't watch SVU. Um, Who doesn't watch SVU? <laughs> I've seen a couple episodes. I was in, I was an extra. I actually, okay, okay. So uh, Joyful Heart is, it's, it's cool. Um, I moved to New York City again to be an artist and then like lived off my savings and wrote for a year. And then I was like, okay, my savings are going down. I need a job. And so I uh, was got a job at the Joyful Heart Foundation. And, um, you know, uh, we didn't have a lot of contact with Mariska, but I have to say that when we did, she was she's pretty cool. Like she, <laughs> she's pretty cool. She, um, I actually was on an episode of SVU. I actually was on the episode that they, the ripped from the headlines of the Chris Brown Rihanna. So, uh, that particular episode, they wanted real advocates who could be real angry on camera, <laughs> uh, which I thought was hilarious. And so, um, so a couple of us on staff were asked to be extras. And so, that was fun. You know, I, I met her a couple times. She's cool. She's cool. She's cool. She's very, um, she's not like standoffish at all. Um, Joyful Heart. Okay. Jo like coming from working in the nonprofit and going to work for an organization that gets no government funding, all the money comes from Hollywood is like night and day. Like the things that we were able to do, like go to their, we would go to their galas every year that they would have at Cipriani's and like everyone's there, like Ice-T, like all the folks, right? All the folks are there. And so you get to see like real money. Like you think you have money until you go to, like you, like they raised like a half million dollars in 30 minutes. And I'm not exaggerating to like, their auctions were like, Samantha Ronson will teach your daughter how to be a DJ, take singing lessons with Cindy Lauper, um, go learn how to cook with, um, what's his face? Uh, the dude, the dude, Wolfgang Puck, um, go to Mario Vitale's villa. And I mean, they would just raise so much money for survivors of um, sexual assault. That was amazing. The retreats that we were able to do we were able to take survivors from California, from different shelters to Ojai, which is like Northern California. It's like super metaphysical, woo-woo, crystal place in the mountains. It's beautiful. And we would be able to wrap them in holistic services for a week. Private chef, you know, we had a yoga teacher. I did Reiki on people. Um, we made art. I mean, just, you got to really see <laughs> what really is possible. Um, when you have funding. And so that was important for me to see that was, and it was good. It was like, you know, there's so much lack in nonprofits, but when we would do our healing retreats or even when we would do our heal the healers, where we would have specific um, retreats just for people who did healing work or even first responders, paramedics, police officers, I would be able to just go to the, to, to flower district in New York with my company and just buy flowers and just, journals for everyone <laughs> you know it's just it's just a completely different world so you get to see what's possible it really challenges this myth that nonprofits can't have money and pay their employees and pay for services like that, that isn't 
reality. Nonprofits are allowed to do that. They can do that. Um, but sometimes if the money's not there, then there's the struggle. But it's not right. because it's not permitted. Co- correct. And this is private money. Like, all, at, at least at that time, all the money came from, like, all of Marishka's friends. So tell us about your role there and how it influenced your next steps. Yeah. So it really influenced my next steps because um, I got to, you know, I always wanted to do retreats for survivors with survivors. And so I was able to do that. Um, and even after I left, um, you know, I left to, to do my Reiki work, to do my own healing work. I mean, I really would say that being at Joyful Heart was a huge turning point for me um, to be like, wow, I can do this. I can, I can be a healer. People will like come to me and I can assist. That really literally happened in the office at Joyful Heart. I had that epiphany. And also seeing how the, the thing about them is they're very, everything is very intentional which coming from a background of, um, again, not nonprofits, it's nothing like I'd ever seen, like even, um, you know, labels, like how labels need to be on folders and like all these things where I'd be like, women are dying. Why do you care about if these labels are straight? (laughs) But then when I would go on the retreat and I would see how everything was so intentional so that when the survivors came to the retreat, they didn't have to think about anything. It was like so much care, so much love for them. And so that just shifted everything for me. I was like, wow, I get it. Like intention is important. And so now when I do my retreats, I'm the same way. When I do my healing work, I'm the same way. When people come to my studio, it's like, do you want tea is here for you? Peace is here for you. So it just, it just changed. Um, so much. And, um, and then when I left, um, they invited me back to run the trauma center, um, that they set up in Newtown after the Newtown shooting. And so I ran, um, that healing center, providing healing services for parents and and the students, um, for a week from. Are you you talking about Sandy Hook? Yes. I was in Sandy Hook. Yeah. Because you know, cause my family's here in Connecticut. I live in New York. And so they were like, you're the first person we thought of. Can you run this trauma center? And so I was like, yeah. So I was there every day from like, um, two weeks after it happened up until new year's, um, making sure that we had healers and that the space was beautiful and, and all of those things. And so then after that, um, they brought me back on as a consultant to be on all of the retreats. And our retreat was actually researched um, by, you know, Marianne Dutton, who's like a domestic violence mama um, and researcher. And so now the work that we did is in in the Traumatology Journal. So Joyful Heart really um, was a huge turning point for me. And I'm still very close with um, the healers that I worked with there. We're, We're doing work now. I hired them as consultants for WOCN. So we're very close. So you've used the term consultant a few times, and I know when I graduated, I did, I wanted to be a consultant, but I didn't really understand what that meant. What is what is a consultant, and how did your previous experience support this role? Um, at the Women of Color Network, which is a national grassroots organization that works to center the voices, the leadership, and the wellness of women of color, working primarily in the domestic violence space. Um, so I started with them as a consultant. I just was support really on 
two or two large projects that we had. I worked along to lead consultants. Um, and then five years later, I wound up coming on permanent. So I consulted with them for three years and then I worked with them full time up until February. And now I'm a consultant again. So you are an employee, but you have a little bit more freedom because you get to kind of set your own hours. You get a, usually they pay you by like on this project, I have 62 days on the project. And so however I structure the work is really up to me. But by the end of those 62 days, all of my deliverables, all the tasks that I have to do have to be done. And so um, sometimes employers like to use consultants because they don't have to pay for your health care and all those things. So that's where it gets a little tricky. You have to take care of your own health care and things like that. But the beauty of it is that you get to have a little bit more freedom and you just have to really know how to manage your time. So how did you channel to the experience of the Domestic Violence Coalition's Women of Color Network and the Joyful Heart Foundation into your consulting work? Yeah, at WOCN? Or just um, well, any of your consulting work, yeah. I mean, I just... How does, how does it all fit together? I don't know. It just happened. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, I've been in this work for so long, and I've just really forged really, really good relationships with people. And I think I said this on Monday, it's really all this work, any work is really all about politics. And it's all about relationships, you have to be good at relationship building, and you have to have a good work ethic. And so um, I've just maintained good relationships um, with every organization I've been at, even the one I got fired from. <laughs> I work with them now, my the first time I was ever fired in my life. Um, but I, I work with them now. And so it's just really good not to burn bridges. And so, you know, th there have been times where I've had, I talked about aspiring allies on Monday. So one of my really good um, white aspiring allies, she was working at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And she knew I had a prevention background, background in preventing violence against uh, folks. And she referred me for that job. And I wound up being the director of prevention there. And so I just have a good work ethic. And um, I just I just take everything I know and I just bring it to that next job. But consulting is hard. Like the first time I tried to do it, I didn't do a good job at it because I wasn't good at time management. I definitely, I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have, um, I didn't have enough experience. Yeah. I just didn't know what I was doing. I'd be like, Oh, the view is on. I'll get to my work. Yeah. The yeah. experience in the field helps justify you doing this job, but experience working independently. Um, exactly. like right now we're all stuck at home with yeah. no one helping us stay on track. Yeah. <laughs> um, like. We're happy to really manage ourselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So your book, uh, from ashes to angels dust has been part of your journey since the very beginning. So tell us, tell us about developing your book into a play. Yeah. So, so I, I started, um, you know, after I, when I moved to Atlanta and um, I was I was a poet here in Connecticut and um, I moved to Atlanta and I just started I wanted to write like a book of nonfiction and um, 
there was one character in the book that was in a domestic violence relationship. This was even before I went to the coalition to work. And um, that character started taking over the whole story. And so I went to the library and I was researching, I was trying to find resources about domestic violence in the black community because this book was like five girlfriends and one just happened to be in a dating, you know, experiencing violence in her relationship. And um, that character just started taking over everything. And so I was like, oh, there's something here. Maybe I need to like investigate that and like tell the truth about what happened to me. And so I started talking to my friends about what happened to them and or about what happened to me and they started disclosing hey that happened to me that happened to me and i was like oh my god like every single one of my friends had either grown up in a violent home or experienced some kind of violence in their life so i was like oh i think this is the book and so i compiled the book and then i just put it away like so many artists do because i didn't know what i was doing and um and then i went to work at the coalition and work took over my life and then when i got fired from that coalition, I was like, wait a minute, I got a book. Like I got, I know things. And so I just started um, really working on that and self-published it. And even when I was creating it, I knew I wanted it to have another life. I just didn't know what it was. And this was a, this was a while ago. This was 2005. The book is about people of color and they were not trying to hear about domestic violence at that time at all. And so I just kind of put the book away. You know, I sold maybe 200 copies and put it away and just went back to work, went to California, worked at that coalition, went to Florida where we met, worked at that coalition. And um, when we were, when I was at the Florida coalition, um, I had a health thing out. You were, yeah, you were still there. So you remember I was gone for a while. And while I was gone, I just was looking through my computer, cleaning out my computer while I was recovering. And I saw these notes from the book that I had already started to compile into a play. Like, you know, like lots of artists, I write something down, forget about it, write something down, forget about it. And then two or three years later, I find it. And I'm like, oh, that's something. And so um, I reconnected with a friend who was a talent person and he was like oh you should reconnect with uh your friend sherry and i hadn't seen sherry for 20 years because when i left connecticut you know i changed my name i did all the things and so um i left a lot of the people that i knew there because it just wasn't safe for me so um he was like i think she'd help you with this and so i sent this skeleton of a play it wasn't even a play to her and she had, she lived in New Jersey, but she'd been an actor and a producer and a director and all those things. So we reconnected and she just saw the skeleton of what I had. And she was like, there's something here. I think that, I think you can turn this into something. And so um, she was like, you need to just quit your job and move to New York and produce this play. And I was like, I can't quit my job. Like I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life. Um, I was like, I can't quit my job. And she's like, quit your job, girl, quit your job. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll quit my job. So, so I, that's when I left Florida and I moved to New York. And um, for a year, I just wrote and I would write and I'd send her what I wrote and she would, you know, give me correction and direction. And so we just did that for a year. And then we started getting shows. The Florida Coalition called and they were like, hey, we have a, can you come perform for our battered, formerly battered women's caucus? I was like, yeah. 
And um, and they were paying. And I was like, oh, yes. And so my crew, we flew down to Florida. We did our first paid performance. And then it was like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence called us. And then Yale called us and Smith. And we just started going all over the place. Um, a theater in Asheville, just like doing performances or people would lease the play and they would put it on. And so that's it. That's that's how it happened. Just like me just saying yes to stuff, not knowing anything about anything and just saying, I'll try it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Two paths. Um, if you looked like on your resume, it would look like these two independent paths, one as an artist and one uh, working in, in nonprofit organizations and conducting research for nonprofit organizations. But they're also tightly inter intertwined with each other. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of students in the class have already started their journeys. They're, some of them are working now. Some lead student groups at our university. Some lead student groups nationally. Um, others work in nonprofit. What advice do you have for them as they take their next steps and they're trying to choose a path or choose a journey? I mean, what I, do you have for them? Yeah, I think that I think that it's really just like let the journey choose you because the thing is, it's I used to you know I used to beat myself up because it's like this society says choose one thing and become a master at it and that's how you become successful, and maybe for some people. But that just, that just wasn't, that it didn't work out that way for me, right? Like violence interrupted my life, but yet here I am doing exactly what I thought I would do at like seven, at 12. I always wanted to live in New York City. I always wanted to be an actor. It's all I ever wanted to do. And, but it took me going into the domestic violence movement and, and doing trainings and speaking in front of people and being affirmed because I didn't have the confidence. You know, I would write my name down at um, poetry shows and then leave before my name was called because I was so shy, I was so insecure. Um, but being affirmed in the movement gave me confidence to say yes to other things. And so now I'm, I'm, I, it's, it was just a complete full circle. So just allow life to take you places. Um, if you're that kind of person. Now, some people, they know what they're going to, you know, they're more like linear. My life just didn't turn out that way. Um, I just would say be open, be open to everything. Um, because I, I just believe that you will get to where you're supposed to be. But, but be confident. Um, because, and this is what I tell my, you know, my writing partner, her daughter, who just graduated from NYU film school last year, um, don't wait. You know, when she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do, her parents wanted her to be a lawyer. She wanted to go into film. And I just said, listen, you don't want to be old like me trying to figure it out. Like, I look young, me and your mom, you know, we look young, but we're not. We're like older people. And you think like we're out here dipping and doing it and all this stuff because we look young. But it's like, no, we wasted a lot of time. Like, do it while you're young, while you have energy so that you're not like trying to break in to these things. Um, especially the way our society is so youth driven. So just just do everything that you think you want to do. Just just do it. And um, isn't that horrible advice? Don't tell your parents. No, that. that's good advice. <laughs> that's like horrible. No, step out there and do it. But that's how I feel. Just say yes. You know, just say yes to it because you don't want to be old trying to figure stuff out. 
You tired? Listen. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your journey. So I want to open the floor to questions or comments from you guys um, thinking about your journey going into nonprofits or any questions you have for Zoe, really. Um, I guess I have a question. Like, have you always been like a risk taker? Like, it, like how you like said you, you left Florida and then you like kept moving around a lot. Like, or did was that something that you had to like get the courage to like, like build up? Yeah, that's such a good question. I've always been a risk taker. Always. Like when I wrote my book and my book is like, it, it has the most personal things that ever happened to me, right, in my life, even though I changed the names, like I changed my name and I changed the other people I interviewed. But um, because I self-published, I had to do this thing called pre-sales. And so my mom <laughs> would like took like my flyer that I made this little flyer for pre-sales to her job, to all her coworkers to buy pre-sales for the book. And then I, it was like two days before the book was going to get sent to them. I was like, oh my God, like all my mother's coworkers are going to like, no, all her, like all her daughter's business. Like I didn't even think that way. So I definitely like act first and think later. <laughs> and luckily it just has turned out for the good <laughs> because man, when I left Connecticut and I moved to Atlanta, I had no job. I think I had like $200. I found my apartment through the apartment guys that I picked up when I was there doing the hair shows. And like a week before I moved, my uncle was like, oh, I'm opening up an Atlanta office. You want to come work there? Like literally that's just, I just have been blessed like that. And then I moved there and I found out I had cousins there and it just, I wound up staying for 13 years. I've taken a lot of risks and thank goodness they have paid off because man, it could have went a different way. <laughs> Great question. If you could say there's one trait that's really carried you far throughout all your experiences in nonprofit and in your theater world, what would you say that trait is? Oh, that's a good question. I am very optimistic and I definitely look for the good in every person. And that has helped me to build very strong relationships. And so um, that's, again, that's definitely helped me. Like almost every job I've gotten since I joined the movement, like the job at Joyful Heart, somebody that I worked with in California called the director there and said, Zoe Flowers just moved to New York. She's somebody you need to know. And they called me in and I just met the person and we just struck up a friendship. And then the job became available like six months later and they called me and they interviewed for me, interviewed me for it and they hired me. So it's just, just being good at building relationships and, and having a good reputation behind you. Good question. So it was never one, like when I, we worked together where I could go to her office and complain about somebody. Cause she, you know, at work sometimes you complain. Yeah. She always looked for the good in everybody all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I tell you what though, that is because I had the experience of being on the other side of that in another organization. You know, I paid heavily. So that is a that is a great point, Kim. I paid heavily for being over involved in workshop stuff. Like that is why I got fired. Mm -hmm. I got all caught up in the injustice of somebody else at that organization. And I went to the executive director with it and I was the one that got fired. And so after that, I was like, mm -mm, I am not getting involved in office politics. It does not work <laughs> for me. Well, you, set, you set a good example. Yeah. 
So don't get involved in office politics, y'all. <laughs> Do not get involved, <laughs> especially in nonprofits, because because most everybody knows each other. <laughs> yeah, small networks. Zoe's career journey didn't take a narrow, linear path from one point to the next. And she merged two careers into one and built her career around her talents and her expertise. She's played many roles as a consultant, as an employee, as an entrepreneur, and it's just fascinating to hear how her journey evolved. So as you're thinking through your life path and your career path, think about how twists and turns may take place along the way. You can make a plan and work towards that plan, but also make sure you make room for these twists and turns, new opportunities that pop up or struggles that pop up, and so that you can be flexible in your journey and respond and take advantage of those opportunities just like Zoe did. <laughs>